This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's really excited to be here in Melbourne. This is my first time in Australia, so I've really enjoyed visiting the city so far. Um, but let's get right into it. So, my name is Molly. I'm a design director at this place. This also, we're a small product and brand design studio based in Brooklyn, New York. And I have not planned it this way. I've just had the good fortune of finding myself working on different types of products for the living room over the past several years. And so a couple years ago, I wanted to start sharing what I had learned about working in this space. But I was very much stuck here, within the frame of the TV, concerning things like the pixels and the interaction design challenges of designing for game pads and controllers. And this is all very, very important stuff, but it felt a little bit myopic, too. Um, I'm an interaction designer by education, so my inclination, as all of ours, is to always dig a little bit deeper, get that bigger picture. So that's what this talk is about. It's about new perspectives, about developing a new perspective on a space that we're likely all intimately familiar with, and about moving beyond that frame of the TV. What I'm hoping is that by taking this big step back, it will give us more perspective about how to move forward in a way that's a little bit more thoughtful and original. Now, a bit of a disclaimer, I am American. Uh, my perspective is American. This is a space that's really deeply rooted in our cultural and our personal experience. I will be talking a little bit about that later. Um, but I just like to acknowledge that. One thing that I love about doing this talk abroad is I get to learn from other people's experiences and the similarities and the differences. So today, we're gonna start by going back, looking at where we thought we would be today. We'll take a little bit of a look at the current condition, and then we'll talk about how we can move forward. So let's go back, back to 1939. This is the site of the 1939's World's Fair, uh, and this is a really big one. This was the first of these World's Fairs that was centered on the idea of tomorrow. Um, and there was a ton of tomorrow to be seen, you could go to the Futurama Pavilion and sit on this moving carousel while you peer down at the city of tomorrow. Tons of exhibits like this one about what highways would look like with self-driving cars. Remember, this is 1939. Or you could even meet Electro, the smoking robot. Apparently, the Turing test of 1939 was whether a robot could smoke. But something else important happened here. This is where RCA, known as the Radio Corporation of America, decided to debut TV to the masses. Now, TV back then, it was a little bit like maybe VR was eight to 10 years ago. Um, it existed mostly in the labs of researchers and inventors. People had maybe heard of it, but had never seen it in person, and it was wildly, wildly expensive. In fact, RCA was so concerned that people would think this new technology was all a ruse that they built these really cool Lucite see-through TVs to try to convince people this was a real technology. So if you're fortunate enough to attend this event in 1939, you would have left with one of these very snazzy pins, and, and I think very much feeling this way, like you had seen the future. In no time, you'd be living with your driverless car and your robot butler and your very own television. But remember, this is 1939. And within six months of the fair start, World War II began. And all that energy, that optimism, that brain power, that was just sucked from the world. And it was like that way for several years until eventually the war ended. And, and the men started returning home, and particularly in America, we were really craving this idea of peaceful domesticity. We had a huge housing boom, millions of what you would consider the prototypical American home was built, and, and TV manufacturers, they were really smart. 
they package the TV as part of that ideal, as something essential to the home, something to bring people together. And this was wildly successful. Within 10 years of the war's end, over 50% of homes in America had TV. Now, the uptake was a little bit slower here in Australia. The big push to get it across the country really came in the lead up to the 1956 Olympic Games. But much like the World's Fair, the Shell Corporation hosted these little town halls across all the major cities to demonstrate the power of TV. Once TV did come to Australia, it had some of the fastest adoption rates in the world. Um, it actually had the fastest adoption rate of color TV out of any other country. So what having TV in our homes did, it really stimulated our popular imagination. They, they were these portals into a world as far or as close from our homes as we wanted. And that, that really stimulated our imagination. We started to think about the future again. This is a really cool Cold War era comic strip that envisioned all sorts of crazy futures. Many of them centered on TV from wall-to-wall -wall TVs to 3D TVs coming out of our ceiling to even TV in our brain. And, and even before we had the concept of personal computing, we started to imagine what else these screens could do. Maybe they could be used for education, for shopping, or maybe even a game of chess. So what a number of these visions build to, they get to this idea of this almost central command center. And this felt like this might truly be TV's destiny to provide us with a highly connected and smart oasis in the center of our homes. But it's 2018, and I imagine that most of us in this room, we feel less like we're living in this technological utopia a la the Jetsons, and our feelings about technology in this space, how we actually feel, we feel a little bit more like this guy, right? I think we've all probably felt this way at some point. So, so how did we get here? Why is this our reality? Well, when you go back and you look at the history of TV itself, of the actual device, an interesting thing emerges, which is that for a nearly 100-year-old piece of technology, TV has stayed relatively the same. Now, I don't want to diminish all the technological innovations that have gotten us to the OLED 4K TVs we have today, um, but at its core, the TV is still just a big, relatively dumb box. Some of them might be smart, but they're not any smarter than the phones in our pockets. So, while TV hasn't radically changed, something else has, and it's something that started slowly and then happened all at once. It started back in the 70s with our VCRs that we plugged into our TV. Continued in the 80s with our first gaming consoles that we could plug into the TV. Then we had our set-top boxes of the 90s for our cable and our satellite signals. And then we had even more gaming consoles. And then there was an interesting moment in the early 2000s with TiVo because um, this marked an interesting shift. We now had more control over how we could use our TV. And that coincided with something else, which was the introduction of broadband internet into the home. And this created an explosion. We have our high-performance gaming consoles like Xbox and PlayStation that also offered media streaming support. Then we see our first media streaming set-top boxes like our Apple TVs and our Rokus. And this just continued and still continues today, and that's how you get here, right? by plugging all this stuff into a TV that stayed essentially the same. Through these incremental steps, we created a really complex ecosystem, one of many devices, technologies, inputs, and design languages. And, and why have we done this? Is this really the best user experience? No, it just comes down to money, like most things in the world, right? Um, TV's not a great business. You can't sell people a TV every couple years. They're not like our phones, we don't just update them. 
So while you can't sell a lot of TVs, what you can sell are a lot of relatively inexpensive little devices to plug into them. And this works out really well. These are stats from the United States that show that millions of homes actually have multiple of these types of devices. And what this means is it creates a really frustrating landscape, one that can feel really confusing for our users and feel really frustrating for us to make any meaningful change within. And this is because of something else that we keep hearing, something that just keeps being beaten into us, which is TV is dead. Now, I'm not gonna argue with it in one sense of the word. This idea that watching TV means coming home at 8 p.m., sitting down on the couch with your entire family, watching that new episode of that show, complete with commercials, never once looking at your phone, that's sort of like appointment viewing, that's dead and gone for sure. But anytime you hear a broad statement like this, if you're working in a specific area or a client is just telling you something that is totally, totally fact, I wanna encourage you to put a question mark on it because rarely is it that simple. The reality is actually a lot different for ourselves and for our users. So yes, broadcast TV use is declining, but this other TV screen use, this is actually increasing quarterly. And this is from the Australian Video Viewing Report. You can actually see these stats quarter over quarter. 43% of homes right now in Australia have internet capable TV. Um, that's a little bit less than what we see in the States, but like I said, Australia's always had really fast adoption rates. So it's a 6% increase over the past year. So this is just continuing to increase. And all this has implications for our products. At Google I.O. last year, Google announced that YouTube, on YouTube, TV was their fastest growing platform. It wasn't mobile, but it was actually TV. So what we've considered to be TV for decades, yes, that is over, dead and gone. But we're at a turning point. There's this convergence of tech entering our homes, and it's bringing a second life to these devices and in unexpected ways that we might not be able to see yet. So how do we unlock this? I'd argue that it's just a really simple change in framing, because when it comes down to it, TV's just another screen. Now this might seem radically simplistic, probably thinking, well, duh. But remember, sometimes the best insights are because from this perspective, things really start to open up. You see, TV is one of the oldest technologies that we designed for. It's nearly 100 years old. And so we carry as designers all of that history, these conceptions of what TV should be. Plus our own personal lived experience in the space, it's just so rich. And this all weighs us down. So, so we need to strip away what we know and look beyond the TV itself to start uncovering those opportunities. So let's build out this ecosystem, placing TV in the center. Um, but remember, it's really just another screen. So we have our TV. The next level out are these things that are directly connected to our TV, all of our devices. But remember, all these devices also exist within their own little siloed world. We then have this invisible layer of data and communication. There's many different communication protocols that these devices use, from infrared to Bluetooth. There's also many different types of data and content that you can access through each of these devices. Input's actually now its own layer, too, because increasingly these are independent of the devices that we're using. From our directional controls, our very traditional controls like remote, to now we're moving into spaces like voice. And then actually, our users only come to play out here, and this is a really important point to make. A lot of the poor, a lot of the poor user experience and the frustration that we express when people are talking about using these devices in their home, it's because of this. You think that you're interacting, excuse me, with the TV, but actually there's all of this complexity in between. 
And then on the outside of this is this emerging tech, this internet of things. There's all this new technology entering the space and it's really pushing. It's not a central part of our, of our poem yet, but it's increasingly going to become that way and we need to start paying attention to it. So that leaves us with this big complex web of layers to untangle, but, but anytime you see this level of complexity, we need to remember that with it comes opportunity. Because at the center of this, it's, it's really just another screen. So, so how do we move forward from here, from this place of radically simplifying the role of the TV? I wanna provide some thoughts and frameworks that I hope will resonate with all the different disciplines that we have represented in the room today, from our user researchers to our systems thinkers, to the people actually executing the interfaces. And where I wanna start, it's, it's a little bit of an obvious place to start, a bit like preaching to the choir, um, but invest in ethnographic research. We all know that this is really important, but it's often important to understand exactly why we need to do this. What are the things that we're really looking for? And at the heart of this need uh, is what I like to call the living room paradox. So the living room is fixed and the living room's in flux. These are two opposite statements that are true at the very same time. So let's start with the living room is fixed. Um, we're actually gonna do a quick exercise. If people can grab a piece of paper, just get a piece of paper and your pen, and I want you to draw a living room. Um, do it like blueprint view, bird's eye view. I'm gonna give you about 45 seconds to do this. Keep it real simple, doesn't have to be fancy. Okay, so finish that up. Okay, so now take that piece of paper, flip it over, grab a new one, kind of do one more drawing. This time I want you to draw your living room. What does your actual living room look like? And do it in the same view from above, that bird's eye view. Finish that up. How many people drew exactly the same thing? Oh, a good amount. How many people drew different? More. So this is a really fun exercise to do um, when you're you're sort of needing. You maybe you're fighting with somebody, kind of needing to prove that point of no, no, no. We just need to actually talk to people. Um, last time I ran this, um, this was in New York. 
Um, oftentimes what I see is this really interesting pattern. I'd actually be interested if, if this pattern is different here in Australia. Um, when you ask people to do this, oftentimes what I see is they, this pattern emerges. They draw the couch, coffee table, TV, couch, coffee table, TV, and couch, coffee table, TV. But when you start to ask people to draw your living room, your specific living room, you see all this complexity emerge. There's a tension between that accepted, the standard, and the model, and your lived experience. And of course, this is what we as trainers are designed to grapple with. This is why we do research. We have to remember that this is a deeply personal space, that despite living this different, more complex reality, we still carry these patterns into our products. An example of this uh, is kind of an older case study. Um, if everybody remembers the good old Nintendo Wii. Uh, this was a wildly successful product for a number of reasons. Um, first, they looked at the market and they saw an opportunity to reach the more casual gamer. But they also looked at the fixed physical space. They looked at the um, space beside the TV. You know, consoles at the time were really large and flat. So they gave themselves the engineering and design talent to make it no more than a few DVD cases thick. Around the same time, a little bit later actually, in part a reaction to the Wii and, and that desire to reach the more um, casual gamer was the Xbox Kinect. Now, I need to acknowledge to this audience, if you were in tech, research, art at that time, the Kinect was an amazing, amazing product. Um, but I'm talking just about that consumer experience. So this was similar. It was definitely a more physical experience than traditional gaming. Um, but there was a big difference. So with the Wii, yes, you needed a little bit of physical space, but it was pretty restricted but it was nothing like the space that the Kinect required. The Wii was developed in uh, Kyoto, Japan, that's where Nintendo was headquartered at the time, while the Kinect was developed in Seattle in the United States. Average home size in Japan is about half of that of the average home size in the United States. Homes in the US, they're certainly bigger. We do have more physical space, but we also collectively have this conception that we have huge living rooms, huge dens and basements. And that's true, it is compared to the rest of the world. But even for American consumers with their fabled large living rooms, people found themselves moving around furniture. It just didn't often work in, in the American home. This is a blog post um, from the tech blog Engadget that came out shortly after the Kinect came out. This is all of their writing staff's living rooms and they were actually measuring to see if people could even use the Kinect or what they would have to move. Now, I'm not claiming direct causation here. There's a lot of rich history as to why each product was developed the way it is. But I think it's really interesting to think about the development of a consumer product from the perspective of where it was developed. To bring a different lens into the products that we're developing, especially as we move into a more global world. Now, that's what I mean by the living room is fixed. It is this fixed physical space that we're contending with. But at the same time, the living room is in flux. Historically, the home was a pretty structured thing in the West, very heteronormative family, dad in charge of the TV. So these images are all over popular culture, and we might have a narrow kind of idealized conception of what that looks like, even when our reality is vastly different. The makeup of family types has changed. Rising costs in cities mean more roommates. We see later marriages and families, less multi-generational families, more adults living alone, older. And we're all getting older, so, so baby boomers are tech fluent, but they're aging. That's gonna change how they use technology. Generally, we have a whole generation of kids who have matured with these technologies and likely use them and perceive them in ways that we don't really understand yet. And then there's the demographics that have been there all along, but we have just been ignoring as an industry. We're finally, finally getting better at this. 
and getting better at serving populations. So Microsoft recently released the adaptive Xbox controller complete with accessible packaging. It's a really awesome case study. I encourage you to check it out. But accessibility in the space isn't just about physical accessibility. It's also about audio and visual accessibility. Apple's tvOS actually has a lot of these features already built into it. So if you're working in this space, I really encourage you to dive into those and to start getting to know them. TV, there's a lot about TV itself that lends itself to a really accessible experience. And we need to start prioritizing and designing for this as well. So what we see happening is we have these evolving demographics and, and they're, they're shaping our users. On the other hand, we have all this new technology that's entering the space and it's shaping our behavior and it's creating this really interesting dynamic that's ever evolving. And this is all happening in a space, it's happening in a fixed space in the living room, but we need to remember that this isn't some sort of fixed idealized space, it's actually somebody's home. But once you get into the space, then some really interesting things emerge. Um, so this is the, the Netflix app of my coworker, Brian. Um, his name is Brian, his wife's name is Katie. His kid's name is not both. Um, <laughs> they made a third Netflix profile so that they could keep track of their shared viewing while also maintaining some of their own autonomy. And when you find stuff like that, it's so interesting because it raises so many questions for us. Questions like, how can we design shared experiences for multiple users, especially when we're dealing with what we consider only a single input? How can our product features be supportive rather than disruptive of the activities and the behaviors already happening in the home? And even deeper, how do interpersonal dynamics shape our interaction with these systems? So think about all the discussion, the debate, and the conflict resolution that happens when there's two people in front of the TV trying to decide what to watch. Um, and the locus of control is actually kind of bouncing back and forth between them. How, how do we design for this? How do we support it? There's really big, meaty questions that we can get into in this space. So we need research, but then we also need to change a little bit how we're thinking about how we actually design. And, and what I would argue for here is that we need to start designing for TV as a touch point. Now, TV used to be a destination, right? You showed up, you sat down, and that was that. But increasingly, TV is no longer the central part of the living room. We increasingly touch many different devices in a day. Our phones are, of course, always with us. And we've developed this real fluency and ease of moving between them. The shift from TV as a destination to TV as periphery, it really started with AirPlay and Chromecast, where we could throw up what we were doing on our uh, phones onto the TV screen. But what's really propelling it forward in this moment is voice. Voice and TV have been a good pairing for a number of years, um, but until really recently, uh, voice and TV was restricted to search. But now we have these voice assistants, and a lot of possibility starts to open up. Now these voice assistants, they have a lot of wealth of data about you. This can be a scary thing, um, or a welcome thing. That's actually a whole other discussion that we should be having. Um, but what it does is it opens up a possibility to leverage the TV in a new way, because remember, TV's just another screen. When I first started doing my research, I came across this clip. Um, this is Walter Cronkite touring a, a home of tomorrow. And, and I felt like I had a bit of an aha moment. Like this did feel like maybe where our products were going, this TV command center. Uh, but there weren't a lot of products out there that, that pointed to this until this past year, um, in spring of this year. Google announced this product. Uh, this is the Google JBL link bar. What's interesting about this, it's a sound bar. It has four pass-through HDMI ports with 4K support. But the other thing that's really interesting is Google Assistant's built in. And this is a product that could really turn the TV into a canvas for the entire home. 
when Google started talking about their insistent integrations with TV, their, their examples were a little bit dry, but I think a really nice starting point. Because the TV is this interesting canvas for our interactions and our activities we're going through before our day, like checking our calendar. And when you think about the shared nature of these spaces, that can become even more powerful. Remember, we have all this emerging technology entering our homes, technologies that might not have their own screen or might have a very small screen. And then we have this big screen at our disposal. We can start leveraging it in really interesting ways. And this can get us closer to that idea of that seamless experience. Now to do that, we need to design from an ecosystem perspective. The good news is that this book has been written. McCall Levin wrote a book um, about multi-device experiences a few years ago. And in it, she defines this really interesting um, framework. The three C's of a multi-device experience, consistent, complementary, and continuous. So a consistent experience, this is just offering the same basic core feature set across all devices. Uh, this is the work that we did on HBO Go. We were just bringing all of HBO Go's content and features to pretty much every device available at that time. Complementary is a little bit different. It's about creating a new experience through these devices as a connected group. Um, one of my favorite examples in this area are all of these party games that are coming out from companies like Jackbox. This is Drawful, so the idea is that anybody can take their phone and essentially connect with the TV and create this group experience. There's a lot of really fun opportunity in this area. The last one is continuous, and this is the one that I really want us to pay attention to here. This is the idea that the experience is passed from one device to another, continuing the same activity or progressing in some way. And this is what can give us that illusion of that seamless experience. Now, one of my favorite examples in this space, this is admittedly more of a side project for Airbnb, but I think a lot of really smart thinking went into it. So they do have an Apple TV app. Um, and, and when they were making this, they really thought about that shared nature of travel planning. It's highly collaborative, often between family and friends. The home's a really natural place for this to happen. And it's also highly visual. So did they bring all that functionality to the TV? No, it's a highly fo focused experience. You can only browse or save listings. And you aren't gonna book on the TV. You're not gonna make a big decision on the TV. We're just not there yet but you can continue that experience on your phone. And this is a great example of leveraging the benefits of each platform to create a really holistic and rich experience. So remember, TV's not a destination anymore, but it's really this touch point within a broader living room experience, something that can really support our behaviors in the home. And lastly, I want to encourage everybody here to challenge existing conventions. If you've used TV apps, you probably know what I mean. So this is CNN for Apple TV. This is Showtime for Apple TV. This is pretty much every single app on the Apple TV, right? Leaving aside the top-down corporate design guidelines of, of Apple, um, is there really any reason why a vitally important piece of breaking news should be presented to you in the same way as that latest show that you're binge-watching? Reuters TV did something really interesting when they first released their Apple TV app. Unfortunately, it does not look like this anymore. But instead of that traditional boxy interface, you were met with a question. How much time do you have? And that's really interesting because the users have come to the experts in what's newsworthy, right? We don't always need to browse for the news. But maybe we can consider other ways to tailor content in a way that's relevant. And this idea has always really excited me. But I was having a hard time sort of articulating 
why or how we can make it useful in our own design approaches. And I came across this blog post by Elizabeth Churchill that she wrote a number of years ago now about this idea of process personalization. So she brought this idea in from marketing. And when I discovered her post on the topic, it really resonated with why I felt how stagnant I felt a lot of TV experiences were. Now, outcome personalization. So outcome personalization, it's all about delivering a set of options offered from a larger set based on what we know about you. This is Netflix's whole business model, right? Get as much content as they possibly can, use the algorithm to give you what they think you're gonna wanna watch. But process personalization's different. It's more about the quality of the interaction. They acknowledge that delivery as well as content should be personalized. Now process personalization comes from marketing. Um, and the concept is grounded in the importance of like face-to-face -face customer service interactions. It's something that we consider in our daily interactions, right? It's how we respond to others. It's about managing the whole recommendation process, about sensitivity to personal circumstances, and not just, here, this is what you want. But what's interesting is while Netflix's entire business is outcome personalization, they've been moving the needle a little bit in interesting ways. They published a really interesting article at the end of last year about delivering different cover art to different users. So for example, based on what you previously engaged in, say you love romantic comedies, when they're showing you a new piece of content, maybe they'll show you the cover art that highlights the romantic aspect of that movie. Similarly, if you love comedies, maybe they'll give you the cover art that highlights the comedic actor that's in that movie. So the, same, the outcome is the same, right? But they're considering a little bit about how they're tailoring it for you. Like I said, it's just moving the needle a little bit, but I think it's going in a really interesting direction. So let's go back to that Reuters example. How can we leverage this idea of process personalization and push it even further? What's the quality of interaction that we want people to have? Can we consider other information about the context? Ultimately, what Churchill points out in her blog post is this question of, of what is the role of the interface? And it's a huge question. But I think a good place to start is just don't jump straight to expected delivery. So here's what happens. When you jump straight to expected delivery, so you have an outcome, and you go straight to the representation, everything else sort of falls into place, right? Because that representation is gonna determine the modality of how you're interacting with it, the type of interaction you have, and even the platform that you're delivering it on. But why don't we turn this on its head a little bit? Why don't we start from that platform level? We can start with questions like, where are we gonna deliver this? Now, I admit most of the time, 99%, you're gonna know where you want to deliver something. But we're increasingly designing for this ecosystem. This may become a really interesting question for us. As we move down, then we can consider what's, what's the quality of the interaction? What do we want to invoke? What's relevant or irrelevant for the user? And then we can get down to the modes. There's all these different types of inputs that are entering our home too. We can use remotes, we can use touch, we can use voice. We can think about this a little bit more deeply. And then eventually what's gonna happen is you're gonna get back to that place of representation. But because we went from this top-down approach, asking these bigger questions first, we'll likely end up at a place that's far different from where we started. Ultimately, what will happen is that pushing on these conventions of delivery, it's gonna make for a richer user experience. So to recap, invest in ethnographic research, design for TV as a touch point, and challenge existing conventions. 
So this is what I hope that everybody leaves with today, um, a, a bit of a, a new perspective um, on a space that maybe you felt like you knew really well, even just a tiny change of your thinking about the role of the TV or about designing for the living room. But even if you don't work in this space and, and you never plan to, what I hope is that by going on this journey with me today, it's given you a push to think about your own area, your own expertise, your platform, your company, from maybe a slightly different perspective. If there are any broad statements like TV is dead, I want you to just put a little question mark on it. To dig a little bit deeper and break down the pieces and start assembling them in a new light. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. Um, we have time for questions. If you have a question, raise your hand and we'll get the mic over to you so that it's recorded. Yes, hang on. Hi, Molly, that was amazing. Um, I'm MC from the ABC. Um, I'm curious around um, what your stats are around how many TVs are in the homes, so not just in the living room, but in other, in other rooms throughout the house. Sorry, the question about the role of other TVs? Well, yeah, if you've got multiple devices. Mm. Um, and so, I guess, actually, two, two questions. How many, yeah. what is a typical home uh, uh, amount of TVs in, ah. in America? And also dual watching and um, if that has an impact on how you, you are designing for your TV mm -hmm. screens. That's really interesting. So the, I used to know this figure. I want to say it's like, it's like a two point something in terms of the amount of TVs that people have in their homes. Um, it's really hard to actually track TV sales and ownerships because people hold on to them for a really long time. Um, this is a really good question. I have been focusing the discussion sort of on the living room, but there are TVs throughout the house. Um, what we're seeing on, I think one place to look is in the voice assistance because people are now, they'll have like their Google Home or their Alexa, and there's other smaller periphery devices that we have throughout. And so I think what we'll see is, this is why I talk up the voice assistant so much, is I do see that it adds that connector between the TVs as some way to bring kind of a seamlessness in terms of your data and your content to all of these other screens, um, hopefully through these lighter weight devices. Um, but I think it's a really interesting space to consider. Molly, thank you very much. Um, it's interesting to see where things are moving, and I, I don't expect you to have the answer to it, but can you talk about the potential new wall gardens that would eventually emerge from um, this type of new device? For instance, Netflix, HBO, owning the content that people consume, the online TV content that people consume nowadays, and they kind of acquiring more and more content, the more users they get, and you know, kind of the growth will that they operate at now. Sorry, I had to. So I get. I guess the question is like, <laughs> do you do you have any views and and the the potential wall gardens that will emerge um, from TV connected TVs, the such walls? as yeah, so wall gardens. Sorry, what do you mean by that? What? Yeah, like a. 
I guess just uh, having yeah. like two or three big players that actually own yeah. the whole ecosystem, blocking potential new yeah. emerging smaller players that want to disrupt or kind of yeah. come up so with new. That's interesting because I've noticed here in Australia, you actually have more set top boxes. I feel like you have Flexbox. There's a bunch of these other little things too. Um, I think that's a great point. You know, I had that slide with like the dollar sign thing, and it's it's all eventually going to come back to money, right? Like we can sit up here and wax poetic and be like, this is how we're going to fight this, but it is going to come down to that. I think the content. That's a really good question. I don't have a great answer to. But I think, yeah, the content is, it's, it's always going to be a fight, right? Like, there's always going to be competition. Um, and they're going to be restricting. We see this with Netflix. We see this with Amazon. There's always a restriction on, on what you can get. I think there is a utopic vision, especially with the online content, that we can all get everything. But I think the reality is it's always going to be, it's going to be closed. I have a, a, a question for you, Please. Molly, which is that we still largely seem to have a distinction between television content, mm. TV shows, movies, that type of thing, versus gaming mm -hmm. content. Yeah. Do you see that changing, like either player from either industry looking to create a more integrated offering? I think a little bit in terms of we're still, I think the casual gamer is often, the, the big companies are starting to acknowledge more that actually there's more interest in gaming in the home. I and mean, one thing with the, the demographics is that now the average age of gamers is something like in their 30s or something, but we still have this conception, right, that it's younger people. Um, and, and so I think there'll be that change too of it. You know, we're going to have older people gaming and be interested in gaming, and that will hopefully will have more of a, there'll be more integration and more. The average age of gamers in my home is 30, mm -hmm. but that's because I'm 47 and my <laughs> kids are in their teens. Yeah. So. Uh, do you know um, anything about the potential or the future of VR integrated film? Like, because I figure it's going to be more expensive to make, but I also feel like it's sort of the the next like expected thing, like one yeah. of those future visions past sort of like that's the one I want kind of. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think that it'll be a little bit further than we think. Um, there's a lot. I don't know if they have these in Australia. There's, they're picking up steam in New York in terms of like virtual reality bars. So we're at this place where we're starting to expose people to what virtual reality is and what it can do. Um, it's still way too expensive for most people to have in their homes. But I think it's interesting that we're creating these more public spaces for people to get exposed to this technology and start to learn what it can do. I think there's a very sort of narrow eyes, narrow conception of what VR can be. And you're right, there's a whole then interesting push on the production side to make these interesting, they're not quite games, they're not quite movies, something in between. Um, I think that, you know, to all the people who are optimistic, everybody's gonna have VR in their home in five years, it'll probably be a little bit slower than that. Um, but I definitely, I, I do envision a future where it's, it's, it's gonna be something that we have in our home. Yeah. One more question. Um, while I'm walking, the idea of a VR bar Mm -hmm. horrifies me for some reason. Am I, it's like, it just feels creepy. <laughs> it's more like a cafe, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so I think one of the interesting things we're seeing in a moment is how on-demand is growing so rapidly and we're seeing uh, a real decline in broadcast television as like, traditionally we know it. But then at the same time, Hulu in America has released linear, what, what they call linear television. And so I'm just wondering around um, how you see these swings in 
it's all on demand, it all looks the same. Um, how you kind of see the different user sets within that and how you push against those conventions because you know, we yeah. talk about you know, going against it but obviously the likes of Netflix have huge teams that do lots of testing on it works really well this way so in pushing against that what do you need to consider and what mm -hmm. do you need to think about? It's a really interesting app that just came out. Um, it's called Dreams. It's an iPhone app. I'm not sure if it's available here in Australia, but essentially it's live TV on your phone. It's an algorithm that customizes it to portrait view. And I thought that was really interesting because it's about, there's no, not everybody wants on demand. You know, live isn't totally the answer either. It's about sort of meeting people where they are. I think that's more where we're going to see it is less that this is a place where I go for on demand, this is a place that I go for live, and actually those differentiations shouldn't matter too much in terms of giving people the content. So I thought that iPhone app was really interesting because it's live TV and it's very much tailored towards your phone. And I think seeing more things like that, that's an interesting thing that I think does push on the conventions a little bit of what it means, for example, to watch live TV. Hi. I think one of the big problems in TV right now is content discovery. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I know a lot of people, including myself, you'll jump on Netflix and you'll spend more time searching than actually watching something. And I'm a digital copywriter and I wonder if part of the role of natural language processing could yeah. be assisting in that discovery process rather than just relying on artwork and, and the visuals. Mm -hmm. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's, um, I think it's where the voice stuff starts to get really interesting. And when I brought up those, I had the one slide about sort of like the interpersonal dynamics, right? So when we think about all of that discussion and that debate that happens in the home, and then we think about it having in the context of this voice assistant, something that's truly acting like an assistant and helping you parse out, I think that's like a really interesting opportunity because you're right, rarely do people know exactly what they want to watch, um, but you have this conversation happening. And so is there a way to bring the assistant into that conversation to pick out those interesting things that hopefully serve you with something that you actually weren't thinking of. Um, I think that's really exciting and really interesting. Thank you, Molly. Thanks Thank you. very much. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.